0: The long haul. 2020 Democrats prepare for a drawn-out battle while working to prove they can unite the party.
1: This is our chance, our only chance,
2: to bring new thinking to Washington.
1: This campaign
2: is like no other. This is our nation's moment.
0: I'll speak to presidential candidates Pete Buttigieg and Senator Amy Klobuchar next. And legal right? President Trump ignores criticism from his attorney general amid questions about political interference at the Justice Department.
3: I stay out of things to a degree that people
4: wouldn't believe.
0: The chief of staff to the vice president Mark Short joins me to discuss in moments. Plus, down south, 2020 Democratic candidates try to gain ground with minority voters.
5: We haven't heard from the most committed constituents in the Democratic
0: Party. Will South Carolina deliver Joe Biden a win? I'll speak with South Carolina Kingmaker, Congressman James Clyburn, ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in for Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is off to the races. President Trump wakes up today in Florida, where he will serve as the Grand Marshal at the Daytona International Speedway. But he leaves behind outrage here in Washington as he continues to sound off on cases in front of his own Justice Department, even after the uproar prompted Attorney General Bill Barr to publicly urge the president to back off. But Barr's own decision to oversee or overrule Career officials in some criminal cases involving people with ties to the president is raising more questions about the line between President Trump and the Justice Department. Meanwhile, the Democratic race to challenge President Trump has moved to Nevada, where Democrats are looking to prove they can build a diverse coalition of support in a primary race many now expect to stretch on for months. This morning, I'll speak with two candidates, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Amy Klobuchar, who are trying to capitalize on momentum coming out of New Hampshire. Joining me now from Las Vegas is the candidate with the most Democratic delegates, Pete Buttigieg. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I want to start with uh, the culinary union in Nevada. The culinary union is... Uh, coming out against Bernie Sanders' health care plan because it would do away with the deal that they negotiated with private insurers. That led to some Sanders supporters personally attacking the union leaders. Sanders had, has disavowed the attacks. I want to show you what he said. He said that harassment of all forms is unacceptable to me, and we urge supporters of all campaigns not to engage in bullying or ugly personal attacks. You've been critical of Sanders about all of this. Is that good enough for you?
1: You know, it's really disturbing to see the culinary union attacked when these are workers who have stood up and fought for, uh, among other things, good health care plans. They're not interested in Washington taking away their choice. And I think part of what's at stake in this election is the idea, the idea I'm putting forward of delivering health care to everybody so there's no such thing as an uninsured American, but doing it with Medicare for all who want it, while union members and others who have good plans are able to keep it. Uh, You know, No one should go after working people uh, for wanting to defend and grow what they have earned. And it's a key point of difference at the policy level uh, between me and Senator Sanders. And also I think uh, uh, very important that, uh, that supporters of any candidate do this with respect. We have a crisis of respect and decency, obviously, in the White House right now. As Senator Sanders uh, done enough that to disavow be the heat of competition on this- our side, but you know, you know, I'll leave it to Senator Sanders to characterize uh, what's going on with his own supporters. What I'll tell you is that I'm focused on making sure that my own supporters uh, and our campaign conduct this competition, even when it's heated, with a level of respect for where people are coming from, because we're talking about workers standing up for their own care. So
0: you say uh, that your health care plan is better for unions in particular because their members could keep their private insurance. But you also have said that if your health care plan is a success, it could create a, quote, glide path to Medicare for all. Can you guarantee to these union workers that if you're elected president, they will be able to keep their private health care plan?
1: Absolutely. Look, Senator Sanders' plan, by definition, abolishes private plans like what the culinary workers and other workers across Nevada and America have. Mine does not. It's a simple, clear, and major difference. Now, uh, as you pointed out, if my plan is the very best insurance plan in America, and I think it just might be, then eventually everybody will cross over to it, but I want them to be able to decide. And in the event that it's not, if some plans out there are better, why would we want to kick anybody off of it? Look, this is a common sense position that most Americans support. It still amounts to the most progressive major reform to health care that we've had in 50 years, but it is doable. It it makes sense. It's the right policy. uh, And it has the advantage of being something that Americans could actually unite around. The next president is going to be taking office in a dangerously divided Washington. Here we have an opportunity to have bold, big, meaningful change and actually have that bold change be unifying rather than divisive. Why wouldn't we take that opportunity?
0: Okay, so, Mr. Mayor, let's talk about the race that you're in right now. You have the most delegates after the first two contests. Uh, They were in overwhelmingly white states. The race is about to get much more diverse. And a new Quinnipiac poll showed uh, that since last month, the former vice president, Joe Biden, his support among black voters has fallen by more than 20 points. But Mayor Bloomberg, his support among black voters has tripled to 22 percent. You, on the other hand, you're at four percent. Why aren't those voters coming to you?
1: You know, I'm not focused on poll numbers right now. We're having conversations with voters, many of whom, by the way, uh, have been very busy in their lives, and uh, uh, last year we're saying, you know, come back to me when there are more than 20 of you, uh, and are taking a different and new look at the candidates now that we've demonstrated uh, that we've been able to uh, gain support in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, as we come to more racially diverse states like here in Nevada and South Carolina, many of the voters of color that I'm talking to are focused in, particularly on, uh, in particular on one thing, defeating Donald Trump. Uh, look, nobody is experiencing the pain of living under this administration, more than voters of color, and I'm talking to a lot of highly pragmatic voters who want to know more than anything else that you can put together the organization and the message that will decisively defeat this president. And there you feel so confident you can convince right them and we because we have got to get this right.
0: Forgive me. You feel confident you can convince them because part of the kind of the, the narrative or the question going into these votes is whether or not success would beget success. You've had success, and you feel confident that that. Voters of color are going to see that and look your way in a way that they haven't before.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I still have to go out there and earn it. This is a process of earning trust with voters who have every reason to be skeptical, who have often felt taken for granted by the Democratic Party, uh, who uh, uh, are, again, very pragmatic right now, too. And so I am not going to take any vote for granted, just as I'm not going to leave any vote on the table. We are campaigning hard here in Nevada. across, uh, Across the country, we'll be working hard in South Carolina to I believe we're in a position to earn the support that we need, not only to win, but in order to deserve it.
0: So your rivals, I know you've heard, they're criticizing you for holding high-dollar fundraisers all over the country. And you have said that you're doing whatever it takes to beat Donald Trump. But right now you're in a race for the Democratic nomination. And Senator Sanders, for example, is raising more than you without holding those high-dollar fundraisers. Is it fair to say that what you're doing now is whatever it takes to beat Bernie Sanders and your other Democratic rivals in order to get to the point where you can go after Donald Trump?
1: So let's be very clear. My campaign is fueled by over two million contributions. I believe the average contribution is under 40 bucks. It is the lifeblood of our campaign. And by the way, if you're watching right now and you can go to pforamerica.com and help this campaign, that is a critical part to how we succeed. I am following the same fundraising practices that President Obama uh, did and and that uh, our uh, leaders have in order to make sure that we draw in all of the support that we need to win. And the campaign I'm building right now is not just for earning the nomination. It is for defeating Donald Trump, who, with his allies, has demonstrated that they will do anything to hold on to power. My campaign is about belonging. It is about inclusion. I don't define this campaign or define myself by whose help we reject. This is about making sure that everybody who shares these values, everybody prepared to defeat Donald Trump, is on the same team pulling together, and we built this from the ground up. Look, I'm not a millionaire. I haven't been in politics for years or decades. Uh, I don't have the advantages of having been a senator. We built this uh, from scratch, and with the hundreds of thousands of individuals who have contributed to this campaign, people of all walks of life, I'm proud of what we've been able to do, and yes, this is how we are going to defeat this president.
0: Last before I let you go, Rush Limbaugh, to whom the president recently awarded the nation's top civilian honor. Uh, described you as a 37-year-old gay guy, mayor of South Bend, who loves to kiss his husband on the debate stage. Now, there has been bipartisan criticism of him for those remarks. I wanted to give you a chance to respond if you would like to.
1: Well, I love my husband. I'm faithful to my husband. On stage, we usually just go for a hug. Um, But I love him very much. And I'm not going to take lectures on family values from the likes of Rush Limbaugh.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much. Good luck on the campaign trail uh, out there in Nevada. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And the surprise third-place finisher in New Hampshire is now drawing big crowds in Nevada. Senator Amy Klobuchar joins us next. Welcome back to State of the Union. My next guest says her presidential campaign is surging At just the right time, after taking third in New Hampshire, Senator Amy Klobuchar is now on the trail in Nevada, where she's hoping she can prove she can keep her momentum going. Joining me now from Las Vegas is Senator Amy Klobuchar. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I want to start, uh, first of all, on the crisis in the Justice Department after the Attorney General Bill Barr dialed back a sentencing recommendation for Trump associate Roger Stone. Nine of your Democratic colleagues, including Senators Warren and Sanders, have called for the
2: attorney general to resign. Do you think he should resign? Um, Sure. I'd be glad if he resigned. I just don't think that is realistic. And what is realistic right now, I didn't support him to begin with. I'm the one that grilled him on his expansive view of executive power, uh, which all of that has come to roost. Uh, But what I think is realistic is that he is now going to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. I'd also like him to come to the Senate. And along with my colleagues, I've asked him to do that so we can probe him on the role of the president in trying to influence uh, decisions in the Department of Justice, in particular, the Stone decision. I just think it's outrageous knowing how hard these career prosecutors worked to do the right thing, how hard they worked on a case like Roger Stone's Got him convicted, and then get undermined uh, when it comes to the sentencing. That's just not normal. Okay, so Senator, let's talk about uh, where you are now—the uh, the, primary—and
0: mm-hmm. the calendar is uh, is about to get, and the states where you are about to get much more diverse. You finished very strong a- in New Hampshire, as you well know, and because of all of that, your time as a prosecutor in Minnesota's Hennepin County is getting more scrutiny. So I want to ask you about that. I want you to listen to what you said when you were running for prosecutor
2: in 1998. I think I'm going to look young. When you look at the crime rate in Hennepin County, it's not acceptable. We have to look at making sure that there's a consequence when someone commits a crime. When you see the dramatic reductions in crime in other parts of the country, we can learn a lot from what they're doing. And they're enforcing the law down the line.
0: So that tough-on-crime approach has now been linked to racial disparities in the criminal
2: justice system. So in retrospect, do you regret that? Well, um, let's set this up. I was running against a Republican opponent who actually was advocating uh, for longer sentences as well as less gun control. Uh, So I was actually arguing when I talk about consequences— Uh, It can mean things like drug courts, uh, like restorative justice, which was a major focus of my time in the county attorney's office. And during my time there, we actually saw a 12 percent reduction in African-American incarceration rates. So what do I think when I look back at that? Um, I was not involved in some of the uh, controversial issues uh, in other states like stop and frisk. I understand uh, that that is unconstitutional. Uh, But what I was focused on there is trying to go after crimes and making sure there's a consequence. But it does not mean that it always has to be prison time. There just has to be some kind of reaction to make sure that uh, people aren't just committing crimes and there's no response. The response has to be tailored to what the crime is. Okay.
0: so from 2002 to 2004, more than 60 percent of juveniles brought to the Hennepin County Juvenile Detention Center were black, according to a Council on Crime and Justice study, even though only around 10% of the county's overall population was black. black. You've been clear that you believe that there is uh, racism in the justice system, uh, but given that and given the stats from back then, do you take any responsibility for the racial disparities in the criminal justice system on your watch?
2: I think everyone involved in the criminal justice system has to take responsibility, including myself. Uh, What we know is that there's institutional racism and how do we uh, get at it is really my job and will be my job as president. And I would argue someone with this experience actually could do a very good job of getting at it. One, sentencing changes like the First Step Act that I was a co-sponsor of that we passed. And as a prosecutor, it was important to have me as one of the co-sponsors, reducing nonviolent sentences on the federal level. As president, I will roll it out for the Second Step Act uh, to create incentives for the states where 90 percent of people are incarcerated, Uh, doing something for clemency and having a clemency board outside of the Justice Department, an innovative approach uh, that I'll bring forward as president. Uh, Doing more when it comes to eyewitness identifications, diversifying police departments and offices, Um, making sure that we have videotape interrogation, something that I advocated for uh, when I was prosecutor. I've always said uh, that we are not like a business in the criminal justice system. You don't want to see repeat customers. What you want to see is people get help so they can get out of the system, which is why I've been the lead Democrat when it comes to drug courts. Senator, I want to turn
0: now to one of your opponents for the Democratic nomination, Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Uh, There's a report in The Washington Post this weekend that paints a sweeping picture of him making crass sexual comments, objectifying women, creating uh, sexist uh, culture in the workplace. Now, I want to be clear, Bloomberg has denied uh, the allegations. He said on Twitter that he has zero tolerance for an environment where women aren't
2: respected. What do you make of the reports? I think he has to come on a show like yours here, Dana. He has not gone on any Sunday show since he announced. Um, I've got to answer questions like I just did on my record. And he has to do the same thing. I don't think you should be able to hide behind uh, airwaves and huge ad buys. Uh, He has to come on these shows. And I also am an advocate for him coming on the debate stage. I know I'm not going to be able to beat him on the airwaves, but I can beat him on the debate stage. Uh, because I believe my argument for my candidacy is so much stronger. The Midwest isn't flyover country to me. I live there. The people that work there, like they're poker chips since I'm in Vegas, uh, one of the uh, president's bankrupt casinos, they're not poker chips to me. They're my friends and neighbors. When it comes to a state like Nevada, uh, they have two women senators, majority women legislature. I have an incredibly strong argument here uh, that this state, this state, has put women in power really like no other state. And then finally, uh, the work that I've done uh, in terms of bringing people with me, uh, not just by running ads, but what we just saw in New Hampshire, moderate Republicans, independents, building a coalition, that's what we need to build a coalition to win. And I'd add one more thing. Since that New Hampshire primary, Dana, I have raised over $12 million in just a little over a week. So I can finally be competitive on the airwaves and get teams in every single Super Tuesday state. So, Senator, uh,
0: before I let you go, I want to ask you about one other opponent, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Congressman Dean Phillips, who is backing you, says he thinks that there are probably 25 to 30 seats that absolutely would be impacted directly by having a self-avowed Democratic Socialist at the top of the ticket. Do you think Democrats would lose the
2: House if Bernie Sanders were the nominee. You know, I'm not a pundit, but what I do know this. I'm the only one on that debate stage when asked, do you have a problem with a socialist leading the Democratic ticket that I said yes. And that is despite the front fact that Bernie and I are friends, we came in together. And my argument is that we don't just have to win an election by eking by a victory at 4 a.m. We've got to win bit. And I'm the one with the track record, as Dean Phillips knows, which is why he's supporting me, that brings people with me, that wins in the reddest of red rural areas as well as suburban areas, that flips the state house every single time. I'm the only one on that debate stage that has done it. It's not talking points to me. And of course, we need to keep the House. And you do that by having a candidate that shares the views. Here in Nevada, as you were just talking about early in the show, We don't want to kick 149 million Americans off their current health insurance in four years, which is exactly what Bernie's bill would do. Um, People are much more pragmatic. They want plans and not pipe dreams. I am the candidate that brings that. And I think that's why we are surging across the country.
0: Senator Amy Klobuchar, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Great to be on, Dana.
0: Thank you. And up next, the attorney general says the president is making it impossible for him to do his job. A top White House official joins me next to talk about that. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. The latest critic of president trump's twitter feed is his own attorney general bill barr who said this week that the president's tweets about current justice department cases make it impossible for Barr to do his job clearly undeterred though president trump is still tweeting about current cases and some new moves by the justice department are raising questions about political interference joining me now is the chief of staff for the vice president and president trump's former legislative affairs director mark short thank you so much for coming in this thanks for having me on Dan. So let's start with what the attorney general said this week. Let's take a listen.
4: To have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job.
0: Why did the attorney general feel the need to do this?
4: I don't know, Dana. I don't think that uh, it's impossible to do his job. In fact, I think that Attorney General Barr is doing a great job. I think he has a lot of confidence inside the White House. I think that the the president's frustration is one that a lot of Americans have, which feels like the the scales of justice are not balanced anymore. That when someone like Roger Stone gets a prosecution that suggests a nine-year jail sentence, which is four years above the sentencing guidelines... And candidly, someone like Candy McCabe, who also lied to federal investigators, gets a lucrative contract here at CNN. People say, how is this fair and how is it equitable? And I think that's the president's frustration. You,
0: you, you don't think that it's unusual for the, for the attorney general to come out it's in any administration, but particularly in this administration, to basically say to the president, back off?
4: Oh, uh, well... I'm not going to tell you it's not unusual, but I think that he does enjoy the support of the president. And I think that, um, that again, the concern that we have is the sense that the scales of justice are not the same. Again, what, what we've seen again and again is that, is that there, the Department of Justice has been politicized. And Attorney General Barr is trying to correct that. Normally, what would happen in a case like Roger Stone's is that if somebody's asked for a sentence that is four years above the sentencing guidelines, it goes up the chain to say, here's why I'm suggesting that. Once that happened... Barb took it back and said, no, that's going that has to be excessive. But I think there's concern about a lot of people who knew that the Mueller but, probe was a fraudulent probe.
0: Which is understandable. There's understandable uh, concern on, on any level in any case. But it's a totally different thing when it's the president of the United States involving himself in criminal cases, particularly involving people who are close to him. And since that interview, and that's basically not me speaking, that's obviously what the attorney general was getting at, Uh, the president continued to tweet. He tweeted about the Justice Department's decision not to prosecute Andy McCabe and asserted his right to intervene in criminal cases. So why isn't the president listening to his the, attorney the pre- general?
4: The president has been able to communicate directly with the American people through a social media outlet. It is something that helped propel him to the presidency. It's one of the things that the American people love about him is they can communicate directly with him. He's going to keep doing it. It's what, he's, it's what he's done from the beginning, and I think it's a very effective way for him to communicate with the American people. When we talk about weighing in, you know, there, I've read even today in the Washington Post, an editorial talking about Bill Barr being the president's wingman. Those are the exact words Eric Holder used when he said, I am Obama's wingman. And the media never criticized that. Yet today, it's never been an accusation that Barr says, I'm his wingman, but the media is criticizing and alleging it.
0: Well, I think what, what, what the, the, it's not, first of all, it's not the media, it's, it's Barr now. Barr is the one who's criticizing the president for his tweets, not us.
4: No, what, what the media is criticizing is they're alleging that Barr is the president's <laughs> wingman. Doing basically politicizing the DOJ when, in fact, Eric Holder said, "I am Obama's wingman," and the media was silent at that time. Dana, the reality is that Barr is being independent. He did come into this decision on his own. It was not something he was influenced by by the president.
0: But what I hear you saying is that it's okay because the president uses social media uh, in an effective way. That it's okay to take that to a level that he, he is a he is a disruptor. He is a precedent breaker. But this takes it to a level where. The Justice Department has historically lived up to its name, What's Mark. You been- know that. It's it's an advocate for independent justice. It's seen that way around the world.
4: What's been happening inside the Justice Department has been unprecedented. When you basically knew the Russia collusion was a hoax and you continued to pursue it, you continued to try to entrap people that is something that the American people have not seen before and it is a danger, too. So for the president to speak up and say it's unfair to prosecute and suggest four years, extra years in prison for Roger Stone. But isn't your there face another way to communicate? The number two person in DOJ go free and, again, have a lucrative contract here at CNN doesn't really seem for most people to be an equitable system, Dana.
0: But most people is one thing. Again, for the president of the United States to inject himself in something like this is, I mean, Justice is supposed to be blind, right? I mean, it's not even close. The perception is it's not even close when you have the president intervening. But let me ask you, let me ask you about speaking
4: out because it hasn't been blind.
0: Barr ordered the Justice Department to reexamine the case of the former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who pleaded guilty uh, to -hmm. to lying to investigators. President Trump said Flynn's situation is very unfair. He previously wished him best wishes and good luck. Why is the attorney general inserting himself in cases involving the president's associates?
4: Because, again, there has been a bias inside the Department of Justice that that attorney general Barr is trying to correct. I think that he has said that the president has not called him directly to say, please do these things. He has acted independently to to initiate these reviews. And I think he's doing a fantastic job with it.
0: Okay, you're saying that there's a bias. I understand why you're saying that. But. It's. There isn't there isn't there isn't proof of that, given the fact that you had Robert Mueller appointed, appointed by somebody who was a Trump nominee. uh, And you had very long, very intense investigations by people who, you know, I know you guys said it was a witch hunt and it was and it was uh, and it was corrupt and all those things. But at the end of the day, you had genuine investigations going on by people who are career non-partisan prosecutors.
4: Well, they're supposed to be non-partisan. That's the basis of our complaint, Dana. The reality is that there are people inside the Department of Justice who very clearly were stating their intent to stop Donald Trump from becoming president of the United States. That is a serious problem, and that is what the president has spoken out about. And as you say about proof, I think it's pretty clear now in the aftermath of the Mueller report that they knew there was no Russian collusion, yet they continued the investigation to see who else they could ensnare, who else they could entrap in, in, in I what they I don't.
0: All right. I don't I don't know that that's true, that they knew that there was no corruption. That's not that's not that's that's not that's not fair. There are a lot of things right. that we we uh, we can and, and will fact check. But I want to move on to another yeah. topic, which is uh, the former New York City Mayor, Michael Bloomberg. He has come under fire for stop and frisk in New York City. Uh, the president tweeted, but then then deleted uh, a tweet calling Bloomberg a total racist over these controversial comments from Bloomberg at defending the practice. But I want you to listen to what the president said about stop and frisk in
3: 2016. Stop and frisk, which worked very well. Mayor Giuliani is here. It worked very well in New York. It brought the crime rate way down.
1: Stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional in New York because it, it largely singled out Black and Hispanic young men. No,
3: you're wrong. You have to have stop and frisk. Stop and frisk had a tremendous impact on the safety of New York City.
0: So if supporting stop and frisk makes Mike Bloomberg a total racist, what does that say about President Trump? I think the president
4: him? has said, as under Rudy Giuliani, he felt stop and frisk was applied legitimately. Under Mayor Bloomberg, the numbers of African-Americans apprehended, I think, grew about exponentially by four. And at that point, there are questions about whether or not it was really targeted on race. And that's who the president's complaint is.
0: So you feel comfortable that there's no. I think what you said.
4: There? Uh, no, I think he said pretty clearly he felt it was the, the policy was, uh, was executed uh, well under Mayor Giuliani, but it was, it was abused under Mayor Bloomberg.
0: But he supports the notion of stop and frisk, which I think he's... it depends
4: on what the criteria are, Dan.
0: Okay. So, I mean, you, you realize people look at that and say he's calling Michael Bloomberg a racist, but he's supporting the same.
4: The, the number of apprehensions grew, I believe it was by four. So it was a a huge explosion. And I think um, that the president has said he felt the program was administered appropriately under Rudy Giuliani. I think he's been consistent on that.
0: So Michael Bloomberg did too much stop and frisk?
4: I think the question is, it appears that he certainly took it to a a further extent that I think the president was uncomfortable with.
0: Okay, one more question about something that hasn't gotten a lot of uh, play, but I know you uh, have interest in, and that is uh, the the budget. And that is uh, the uh, president's budget put forward... uh, last week, uh, says that the federal deficit over the next 10 years will not be eliminated. It's actually climbed to more than $1 trillion. The president vowed during the campaign to eliminate not only the deficit, but the entire national debt by the end of his second term. Why is this a promise that he feels comfortable breaking?
4: The, the spending problem is one that afflicts both Republicans and Democrats alike, Dana. If you look at the president's first budget, it did balance in 10 years. At this point, as we've accumulated additional deficits. It's now taking 15 years. But traditionally Congress has thrown out the president's budget. If they would stick with the president's budget, we could get back onto a balanced structure. But the process is that both Republicans and Democrats in Congress end up spending too much money. And we have we do have a deficit. As department. you
0: know, the budget is a is a is a political document of of what the desires are yeah. and the policy goals are of a president. The fact that he's not even trying, even saying that his goal is to balance the budget and that the deficit will, will still balloon, especially in really good economic times. I mean, these are the times where you're supposed to be able to deal with that.
4: Yeah, so, so with, why not? with President Trump's economic policies, you have continue to see revenues grow. Americans are thriving. More Americans ever before are employed. Therefore, many of the reliance upon social programs has come down. The economy is fantastic, Dana.
0: So why not cut but, the, but the budget but now? The
4: reality is that where President Trump has suggested uh, modest cuts, it's, it's, it's presumed by a lot in the media saying they're draconian cuts. And so the reality is he's trying to do the best he can to balance it within 15 years. If Congress would come along with us, we could do that. But thus far, Congress has been unwilling to actually to accept the budgets. You're right. It's not a legislative document. It is here's our policy guidelines. But our administration puts a lot of time and effort in putting that budget together. It's why it balanced in 10 years. The first year, it's up to 15 years now. We have a chance to control this if
0: Congress will work with us on it. Mark Short, thank you so much for joining me this Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The South Carolina primary could mark the end of the road for more than one Democratic candidate. That state's kingmaker, Congressman James Clyburn, joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. The Democratic primary is moving on to the more diverse states of Nevada and South Carolina, where the primary could be a make-or-break moment for former Vice President Joe Biden, who says that this state, at least South Carolina, is his firewall. But as Biden's support among African-American voters slips nationally, could a key endorsement give him a boost in South Carolina? Well, that state's kingmaker, Congressman James Clyburn, says he's not ready to say which candidate he supports quite yet. And he joins me now with a big grin on his face. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. So, uh, Mr. Clyburn, first about the former vice president, he's called South Carolina his firewall. But so far, he's coming fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire. And a new Quinnipiac poll shows that his support among African-Americans on a national level has fallen by more than 20 points in the last month. So will South Carolina be his firewall?
5: Well, I don't know. Uh, We'll see. Uh, I think that uh, we've been seeing the numbers uh, all year. Uh, In fact, last year as well. And the vice president was leading among African-American voters in South Carolina by a wide margin. These things usually tighten up when you get close uh, to an election. So we don't know. We'll we'll find out uh, in about 10 days.
0: What's your feeling? I mean, you, you have a better sense of, of what's going on in the ground there than anyone. Do you feel that his support is slipping or do you feel that he's still in good shape down there?
5: Well, I think the Stayer uh, is doing an incredible uh, job. Uh, Buttigieg uh, is doing very good. Uh, I passed my uh, grandson's house as I came to the studio today. And, um, you know, he's working on the Judge campaign. He had a big crowd at this house. So I think there's a lot of activity taking place here. And I think that we're going to have a real spirited contest.
0: Okay, so you've said that the reason I'm not asking you is because I'm not going to get an answer about who you're going to endorse uh, (laughs) because you won't do that until after the South Carolina debate, which is on February 25th. The New York Times is reporting that your previously expected endorsement of Joe Biden is now uncertain because you're worried about endorsing a candidate who may not win South Carolina. Is that true?
5: I don't know where they're getting that from. I'm very, uh, I'm an admirer of the New York Times. I read the New York Times, but they don't always get it right. Uh, The fact of the matter is I have never, ever worried about who will win in order to tell my supporters who I favor. So I will never, ever base my Uh, support upon whether or not I think that person will win the state anyway. Why would you need my support? I did not support uh, Barack Obama uh, publicly uh, in 2008. Um, And nobody thought he was going to win, but he did. So I don't know where they're getting that from. That's not how how I make decisions.
0: Okay. All right. So let me ask you, you mentioned Mayor Buttigieg. Uh, He is actually running an ad in South Carolina right now featuring your grandson who works for him. Uh, You said to me on this program in November that uh, Mayor Buttigieg will have trouble with older African-American voters in South Carolina because he is gay. He's done really well in Iowa and New Hampshire. As voters learn more about him, do you think they still feel that way?
5: I think that we all grow. We mature. And I think that um, uh, political Uh, calculations are changing uh, quite a bit. You know, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church. My father was a pastor there. My grandfather was a pastor. I know what takes place in fundamental Christian churches throughout the country. And so, though I may feel differently, I don't adhere to everything that was taught in the church I I grew up in. Um, So, Uh, What I feel personally and what I know uh, to be fundamental to uh, teachings in fundamentalist churches are two different things. I want to try to answer your question as honestly as I possibly could. And I think I still feel uh, that that is a a problem. uh, And we all have been reading uh, what has been said in the last uh, 24 hours about that. It doesn't bother me personally. I like the mayor very much. And my grandson and I talk about it all the time. But that's not the way I feel personally.
0: But you still think it's a problem? You don't think it's changed?
5: Oh, yeah, I did say it's changed. It's just matured. Okay. The calculations have changed. Yes, that's what I said at the outset.
0: I see. Okay. So uh, one last question. You mentioned Tom Steyer. He got less than 1% in Iowa, less than 4% in New Hampshire. But he's in second place right now in some polls in your state. Briefly, why is that? What do you think is going
5: on? I've always said money is a mother's milk of politics. Yeah. He has money and he has been spending it. And so I think that that will always make a difference. Where was Bloomberg nationally among voters a month ago? But he has money. He's been spending it and he's changed uh, the calculations a lot. So for us to uh, just pretend the money doesn't make a difference, uh, that would be foolhardy. Money makes a difference. Steyer has it. He's been spending it. And he's reaping the rewards.
0: James Clyburn, thank you so much. We look forward to uh, seeing you down there in South Carolina and to hearing what your decision is. You've said Do you know who you're going to vote for. You just won't <laughs> say it publicly yet. Thank you very much for your time this Not morning. Not yet. Thank you. Thank you. And make America great again. It's actually a slogan with a very long political history. That's next. (laughs) Thanks so much for watching tonight, the high-stakes race for the Oval Office.
3: So, you want to be the leader of the free world. Just how far will you go to get what you want?
5: The hope of a
0: skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him, too. He just got to the Senate. The general feeling was that was pretty audacious.
1: He said, I'm not getting in this to lose. Lyndon Johnson, he's one of the most Machiavellian players in American politics who basically will do anything.
3: We figured out that we must be being bugged. He put a black book on my desk. I probably shouldn't have said, where'd you get this bill? It's impossible to overestimate how furious Ford was. You do not challenge the president of the United States when he's an incumbent.
1: I promise you, we as a people will get there.
3: We'll make America great again.
1: Race for the White House tonight at 9 on CNN. When you
3: work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.